Thank you, Matthew. Great job. I want to change the order of our service just a little bit to confuse our ushers. So ushers, if you would prepare to take our offering at this point. And as they retrieve the plates, or as they make their way forward, rather, I'll uh, bring you a few prayer requests. Told you this morning about uh, Carmen Varner being in the hospital. He was released this afternoon, put on some medication, and you'll have to go back to the doctor on Tuesday. Lisa Lang's going to be having a uh, arteriogram on Tuesday, so we want to remember her as well. Kim Luck is on a mission trip to Honduras. We want to remember her team, uh, that they'll have success in the work, and let's just bow in a word of prayer for the offering. Father, thank you for all that you've given us, what you've entrusted into our hands. We recognize that we have truly been blessed. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful as we return a portion of that to you this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I should go ahead, if you would, and let me encourage you. We're going to be moving ahead a little bit. I understand the weather's a little bit threatening, and I'd like to get us out a little bit early if I can. The uh, week before Easter, we began a new series, a new study on knowing what I believe. In the first message, we looked at the fact that the Bible is the sole moral authority in the life of a Christian, that everything that we believe should be based on what the Bible says. Now, there are many denominations that make up the Christian faith, but basically all those denominations can be divided roughly into two groups, one called Calvinist, the other called Arminian. And perhaps the keenest division between those groups is their belief about eternal security. The Methodists, the Wesleyans, the Pentecostal, the Church of Christ, and in a different sense, the Roman Catholic Church, all to varying degrees and varying ways argue that under some circumstances, a Christian may lose his salvation and be denied entrance into heaven. On the other side are the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and all of the Reformed churches. They insist that a true believer may sin, even sin terribly, but that in the end, all those who are truly redeemed will finally enter into heaven. Most Baptists, and I say this with some distinction, most Baptists, though not all, uh, believe that a person can have eternal security. What I'm talking about is called many things. It's called eternal security. It's called once saved, always saved. And in former times, many times was called preservation of the saints. That's to name just a few. And while it is true that none of those phrases appear in the Bible, I believe that Scripture clearly teaches the principle. It's difficult for us who live in a very uncertain world to believe that anyone can be that certain of heaven. How can you be sure? Does that teaching not invite pride and even possible spiritual laziness? Is, it, is that doctrine damnable as... Jimmy Sweard once referred to it because it encourages believers to sin because they don't have anything to lose. Kind of an interesting side note for me is that Jimmy Swaggart had a perfect opportunity to support his argument if on discovery of his 
moral indiscretions, he had argued, you know, I lost my salvation, but now I've repented and I'm saved again. But surprisingly, given that he, that was his belief system, he did not argue that he had lost his salvation, but rather that demons had caused him to sin. The real problem is in understanding assurance is that if it is based on our worthiness, our sinlessness, our works of righteousness, we are indeed without hope. But since our eternity security rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ and on the, our one-time identification with him by faith, we can have confidence. It's one thing for you to be saved. That's a blessing. It's a double blessing for you to be saved and know you are saved. But it's a triple blessing to be saved, know that you're saved, and know that you can never, ever lose that salvation. Just want to point out three simple things in our outline tonight, and that's first of all the, the scriptural support for eternal security. This doctrine is founded, I believe, on scriptural teachings which say that God saves us and it is he that keeps us. It's founded on scriptural truth which teaches us that God gives us eternal life. It's not life until we sin again. It's not life until we feel differently. It's not life until times get tough and our faith grows weak, it is eternal life which can never end. Now there are a number of scriptures which I could bring to our attention tonight, and I'll just run through a few of them for you that I believe affirm this doctrine of the preservation of the saints. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, he says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, ever. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. I've always really liked the image that is in that verse that says, first of all, that I'm inside Jesus' hand. Now, that's pretty good. I'm my soul is entrusted to him and it is inside Jesus' hand. But that's not all it says. It says the Father's hand is wrapped around Jesus' hand and no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand. We are doubly <clears throat> protected. Romans 8, 38 and 39 say, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power <clears throat> to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point of those wonderful verses from Romans 8 is that Paul is summoning all of creation to witness the security of those who God has called to salvation. The list appears to be exhaustive. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor any depth, or anything else in all of creation. None of this, or all of this taken together, or any of it gathered in small parts can separate us, the true believer, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. Of course, the good work of which Paul is speaking is the good work of salvation, which God has begun in each of us and will continue until it is completed in the day of Jesus Christ. When Paul says he is confident of these things, he uses a very strong Greek word that really usually means fully persuaded or absolutely certain. It means to have no doubt whatsoever about the outcome. It makes sense, though, when you understand that salvation is God's work from the start to the finish. After all, all of us as human beings leave some things undone in our life. If you don't believe me, just look around your house sometime. Look at all the evidence of unfinished projects. I like to have four or five going at the same time. Makes me feel better. But what we begin with great enthusiasm, often we lay aside because of time pressure or because of conflicting commitments. And sometimes we get back to those things and sometimes we don't. But it's not so with God. He finishes what he starts. And of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Sometimes we use the term eternal life only in connection with what we believe is going to happen to us after we die. We really don't think about this life and the next life overlapping. But the biblical concept is quite different. Because God is eternal, the life that he offers is eternal. That life, that eternal life, begins the moment a person believes. According to Jesus' own words, a believer has present tense possession eternal life. John 3, 36. He has crossed over from death to life. John 5, 24. He cannot perish. John 3, 16. He will never be driven away. John 6, 37. And Christ will lose none of those that have been entrusted to his care. John 6, 39. And no one in all of creation can snatch a believer from the hand of Christ. John 10, 28. It's hard to imagine how words would be any plainer to express the security of a true believer. You see, the scripture is filled with assurance that our salvation is secure. Secondly, I want you to look at the problem of perplexing biblical passages. What about those passages that seem, at least on the surface, to suggest that we can lose our salvation? Well, I don't have time to comment on each passage individually. I think that we will find that those warning passages, for the most part, fall into four broad categories. First of all, some of those passages are addressed to false professors. Certain passages in the New Testament are warnings against false profession, that is, Religious activity without truly having Jesus Christ in your heart and life. 
Some people might be very religious, but they are also very lost. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23 come to mind as a primary example. There Jesus warns against people who work miracles in his name, yet in the latter day, when they stand before him, he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. In all the New Testament, perhaps there's no better example than that of Judas, personally chosen by Christ, given the privilege of living with Christ for over three years. Nevertheless, he never committed himself to the Lord. According to Acts chapter 1 and verse 25, it says he went where he belonged. Literally, it says he went to hell when he died because he was never a true believer in the first place. So that's those warnings really don't touch on the question of security because they're addressed to those who were never saved in the first place. Some passages warn against the loss of eternal rewards. Other passages often mentioned really don't deal with the issue of a true believer losing his eternal reward in heaven, but deal with a believer losing their re eternal reward. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 3.15 speaks of escaping through the flames. That's not a reference to hell, but to the blazing gaze of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, it speaks of Paul buffeting his own body lest he should be disqualified. He didn't mean lost. He meant removed from his ministry and, and to lose God's blessing through disobedience. Again, none of those warnings deal with loss of your eternal salvation, but rather deal with the real possibility of losing eternal rewards in heaven. Some passages, third, <clears throat> deal with the danger of facing physical judgment and death. Now, this is not like something that people like to hear, especially in our day. 1 Corinthians 11.30 speaks of believers who were sick, who were weak, and in some cases who had prematurely died because of misbehavior at the Lord's table. I would suggest to you that 1 John 5, 16 and 17, when it speaks of the sin unto death, is talking about this very thing. And when we look at James chapter 5 and verses 19 through 20, we find the same sort of thing when it talks about an exhortation to save a sinner from death. None of these passages warn against losing your salvation, but rather they teach us that God take seriously the sinful lifestyle of those who claim to belong to him. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 4 through 11 teach us the possibility of putting ourselves in a position to be disciplined by God for our sin. And then some passages are calls to holy living. Finally, there are many passages that, that contain serious calls to holy living. Again, Hebrews chapter 12 says that without daily holiness, no one will see the Lord. So in one sense, all believers are holy through our union with the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. In another sense, holiness must be lived out on a daily basis as we seek the Lord in everything. 
In the same vein, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 challenges us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God through anger and malice and other sins of the heart. For when we do, God's best is not seen in our lives. If we take a look at those warning categories again, I think we can kind of summarize it this way. First, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is. Secondly, how you live as a Christian matters to God. Third, there are future rewards for those who take their faith seriously. And fourth, there are present and future judgment for Christians who do not live out their faith. The third and final thing that I want to address with you tonight is the reasons why people doubt their eternal security. Now, I have to be honest and say there are probably as many reasons as there are people who doubt their salvation. But let me just give you some reasons why I believe there are those who, why some people doubt their salvation. One, some doubt because they don't have a proper understanding of salvation itself. You see, if you think you're saved by good works, then it stands a reason that, the, <clears throat> that your salvation could be lost by bad works. That's the problem with many of our dear charismatic brethren. They feel that they can lose their salvation. If you can earn it, you can lose it. But since you can't earn it, since it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, then you didn't deserve it in the first place. How could you lose it simply because you slipped? There, that's why a proper theological understanding of salvation is a must. God chose to save us not based on our merits or what we deserve. In fact, he chose to save us in spite of who we are and contrary to what we deserve. Salvation is based on his goodness and his grace and not our merit. When we get, really get a hold of that and understand it clearly about how bad our sins are and how, God's great, how great God's grace is, it will give us a newer and deeper appreciation of our salvation. Secondly, some doubt because they don't have a biblical understanding of preservation. Instead of realizing what God has said in his word, they may have based their feeling on something else. Sometimes those, believing, those <clears throat> are based on experience. You've probably heard someone say something like this. I knew a person who at one time made a decision for Jesus Christ. And then one day they walked away from that faith, and they left God behind. They just laid down their salvation and abandoned God. I think Scripture gives us an insight into those cases. In 1 John 2:19, it says, And they went out from us because they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. The third reason is that they may have not considered the promises of God's Word. Now, of course, the antidote to that is pretty simple, that we need to get grounded and rooted in the Word of God 
and learn what it says about who God is and what God promises. God's Word tells us that He gives us eternal life. And one of my favorite on this particular issue is 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life, and the one who has who does not have the Son, does not have life. And this is the important part. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. Just a couple more quick reasons why they may feel that way. One, the reason that some people may feel that way is that they are out of fellowship with God and that thus they don't sense his presence. I suspect there are many Christians today who experience doubts about their salvation for no other reason than they are out of fellowship with God. Folks, our salvation is all about relationship. But many Christians have allowed sin to remain in their lives unconfessed and unaddressed. They have grieved the Holy Spirit of God and they are therefore no longer sensitive to his presence. Their lives don't seem to show forth that evidence and they are not aware of any movement around them. The solution is simple, and that's to get right with God. First John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing you these things that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for, that, for those of the whole world. And of course, the last but not least, some have doubt about their salvation because they're lost. They don't feel saved because they're not. One of the reasons that people doubt their salvation is simply because they're not saved. They may have a knowledge of the church, may have a knowledge of scripture, they may have grown up in a Christian home, been surrounded by Christian friends, and have all the trappings and know the terminology of the religion, but at the end of the day, they cannot say that they have the experience of a transformation of life, the kind of transformation that only Jesus can give. I think it is to this end that Paul tells Christians at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. The reason many people will not make it to heaven, although they have been baptized and they're church members, is they never gave themselves a spiritual examination. They never stopped to consider whether or not they were really saved. If you're really saved, you should know it. God does not want you to be paralyzed by fear and doubts. They're ungrounded or unfounded. The solution is clear. Know what God's word says about salvation. Stand on the truth that it is he who saves you and not anything you have done. Ground yourself in good doctrine. Remember that your salvation is a reflection and an extension of God's character. He is faithful. 
Let him show you if there is any sin in your life and stop for a moment to examine yourself spiritually to see if you are indeed in the faith. Which brings me to my conclusion. I want to make three practical suggestions as how we can put this into practice. First, realize that salvation, according to the Bible, is by grace through faith. We cannot be saved by grace and kept by works. It's simply not compatible. In order to be eternally saved, then that which we have received has to be eternal. It can't be given and taken away, or it is not, in fact, eternal. The Bible says that it is possible, even desirable, to know that you have eternal life. I'm aware that not every evangelical, nor even everyone who has heard this sermon tonight, agrees with what I've said. And let me be the first to admit that some of the most godly Christians that I have ever known believe that it was possible to lose your salvation. They walked with Christ. They served him wholeheartedly. They shared the good news with others, and yet they did not seem to have a sense of their own personal assurance of salvation. Having said that, most of those don't believe in the concept of being saved over and over again. They would agree that being saved over and over again produces a roller coaster Christianity. Well, I was in seminary at Mid-America Seminary in Memphis, and of course that's a Southern Baptist school, and I was an independent Baptist. I had a friend who was a free will Baptist. We were the outcast of the group. Today, one day we sat down at lunch and I asked him a question. I said, look, I'm not interested in starting an argument, but since you believe it's possible to lose your salvation, what do you think it requires to lose it? I really want to know. He sat back and thought for a few moments, and this is what he said. He says, I think you have to go out the same door you came in. That is that you have to renounce your salvation. Well, I think he captured what many who do not believe in security hold to. Most are convinced that as long as you continue to believe in Jesus, you are eternally secure. In their minds, the only way to lose that salvation is to totally and willfully reject Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, that is, become apostate. Short of that extreme step, they believe that you can rest in your salvation. They simply want to hold out the hypothetical possibility that salvation could be lost through deliberate personal rejection of Christ. At some point, it almost becomes somatics, if that is what you believe. You say the person rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, went out the door they came in, and therefore lost their salvation. Those who believe in security would say, no, that person was never truly saved in the first place. I think that ultimately we're going to all be surprised by the grace of God. What do I mean by that? Well, someone once said, said it this way. There will be three surprises when we get to heaven. Number one, we're going to be surprised by the people who 
we didn't expect to see there. Number two, we are going to be by surprised by some of the people who aren't there that we expected to be there. And three, the greatest surprise of all is that we're going to be there. That we, as sinful as we are, have made it to heaven. We are going to be surprised by the grace of God. You see, heaven is going to be so much greater than we had imagined. Christ himself, so wonderful that we marvel that God would save people like us. The grace of God, which seems so great now, is going to seem even greater then. When we finally get to heaven, we're going to appreciate our salvation even more than we do now. Which leads me to the final question. Are you going to be there? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? Are you sure? I believe that you can be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've loved us so much that you've done everything necessary for our salvation. That none of it is dependent upon us. None of it is dependent upon our merit. We don't have to deserve it. None of us do. But it is entirely dependent upon your grace. And all that we need to do is accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary, paying for our sin, bearing the consequences of our sin. If there's one here tonight that doesn't know you in a personal way, doesn't know for sure that they're saved, I pray that tonight you would strengthen that within them. If there's one here tonight that doubts their salvation, I pray that you would make it clear to them. Make it clear to them whether that's a faulty understanding or because they have allowed sin into their life and it's caused a break in their fellowship or because it's of the fact that they never truly have turned to you, repented of their sins, and been forgiven. Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be useful. But the only way that we can do that is that be in a place that we are sure that we belong to you so that we can go about the business of sharing the good news with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand with me. We're going to have a brief.